Welcome to The Last Call. It's a conversation with two boozy hacks. My name's John Sweeney. I'm in London and I'm drinking a glass of Montepulciano d'Abruzzo. Sorry, I can't even pronounce that properly. And Mike Weiss is in New York. And what are you drinking, Mike? I'm having my gin and soda, as always. This has become a <laughs> boring theme or light motif of the podcast because I'm drinking the same fucking thing every week now. <laughs> you can answer uh, that question, can't you? Yeah, there are two other uh, constants in our uh, in in uh, the dull in the dullness of this podcast to which two or three people listen. Um, one of which is that we have a, a conversation, a competition about whose country is more um, fucked up: uh, the United States, the United Kingdom. And then we, I have a bet um, that Joe Biden will defeat Donald Trump, and I. I detest Donald Trump so much, I bet 500 quid. Um, But perhaps I should have bet that um, by the end of the week or in a week's time, London might not have a statue of Churchill Nelson left. I don't know. Um, So, Mike, whose country is more fucked up, Britain or the United States? Still mine. You had, let's see, this week... um... And mind you, these are just the things I've kept track of. And I always miss, it's weird. I, I always bury the lead because I miss the most egregious thing Trump has said or done um, for the stuff that tends to be covered a little more um, uh, comprehensively in the U.S. press. So let's see, he tweeted that the 75-year-old man who was shoved to the ground by a cop in Buffalo wielding a baton, and then the 75-year-old man who bled out the head was secretly a member of Antifa and was carrying some kind of electronic equipment to, I don't know, do signals intelligence or whatever the hell Trump said. Anyway, there, uh, needless to say, there's no evidence to suggest this uh, septuagenarian is a member of a, a sort of semi-clandestine, not even organization, but weirdly, you know, non-cohesive movement that's fanned out throughout the country. And for which, according to the New York Times, um, there's precious little evidence that DOJ and their federal indictments of people who have been guilty of looting and rioting and other acts of uh, criminality in the last two weeks, there's very little evidence that Antifa has been involved in in any of this stuff. Um, So you have that. Uh, Then you have the president coming out very forcefully against the renaming of U.S. military bases, which had been named for Confederate soldiers or officers, including Fort Bragg, Fort Benning, and Fort Hood. And this at a time when the U.S. military has been the most forward-thinking and the most responsive to putting an end to the Confederate legacy and saying, you know, enough is enough. Um, We have Black Uh, We have black soldiers serving in our ranks at all levels in all the branches of the armed forces, and there's no reason that they should have to be sent to a training camp named after somebody who believed in their own uh, slavery and bondage. Um, So, you know, it seems like Trump is trying to, you know, he's lost the economic argument because he can't sell himself for reelection on the basis this is the strongest economy ever. Um, so he's now going to reignite the culture war. And what's interesting about this from my perspective, I wrote a piece for the Daily Beast last Sunday, which actually this week I'm quite proud of, especially because it seemed, uh, you know, maybe through just pure 
kind of primal instinct, I, I had a, a, a kind of prescient moment where I said, these statues are coming down and this is unlike other events, um, Charlottesville, uh, Ferguson, um, you know, uh, other r- racist pogroms in the United States where Confederate monuments have been attacked or vandalized. Now they're coming down, not just by protesters pulling them down, but also at the behest of elected black leadership. There's a mayor in um, Birmingham, Alabama, of all places, who went on telly and said, you know, look, protesters have been trying to knock down this obelisk that was erected as tribute to the Confederacy. I'm just going to take it down. Uh, and the, the attorney general of Alabama has threatened to sue. And so you can't do that. You have to follow the proper state protocols. And the mayor was just like, sue me. I don't care. So these things are coming down all over the deep South. They're coming down elsewhere as well. I think there's a call now by Nancy Pelosi and other Democrats to take down Confederate monuments in the uh, in the capital, Washington, D.C. So we've reached a hinge moment, I think, for historiography about the American Civil War, right? The, the, the old hackneyed argument, the South will rise again. This is about Southern patrimony and heritage. It's nothing to do with slavery. That's all been consigned to the dustbin. There are very few people, even NASCAR, NASCAR, of all things. I mean, explain, explain to Brits what um, what NASCAR is. Uh, well, it's um, shall we say uh, like Monte Carlo, but at a much lower socioeconomic bracket in the U.S. Uh, it's, I mean, it, it it really is kind of the it, you know, it, in English, English, it's the uneducated um, whites' pastime of choice. It's it's car racing. Right. Yeah, it, um, it's racing. You've heard, you've heard the expression. You've heard the expression "soccer mom," no doubt, right? Because this was yeah. a, a, a political demographic created, probably pre Sarah Palin. Anyway, to describe um, educated white women and how they tend to vote. So uh, the the counterpart or the complement to "soccer mom" was NASCAR dad at one point, which is to say the white working class. Um, who tend to be economically sort of somewhere between liberal and conservative, but on cultural issues, they tend to be conservative. So NASCAR has said no more Confederate iconography. It's banned from the sport. Um, so for Trump to run from to the right of NASCAR on a cultural issue uh, as sensitive as racism in America right now is certainly interesting. And frankly, I think going to fuck him deeply. And not just him, but actually down ballot Republicans. So there's a, a a measure in Congress, I forget the name of the GOP guy who's introduced it, which basically says, we don't care what the president has to say about renaming US military installations. Within three years, no more um, Confederate names. So Fort Bragg, Benning, Hood, they all have to be renamed. Uh, so I think even the Republican leadership, bar Trump, realizes that this is not an argument worth having anymore that the country has moved on and look at the polling we discussed offline look at the polling on black lives matter and how dramatic and quick the shift from either being hostile to the movement or agnostic about the movement has been has has come to being in favor of the movement so america is actually you know i want to get into some of the excesses of the last couple weeks and some of the sort of more you know woke catastrophes if you like that have have consumed not just my country but also yours but i will say i mean if you if you just kind of drill down to the core component of all of this it's actually quite 
reassuring. It's a quite positive moment for this country because we've put paid to all the, the I mean, you know, the, the defense of the Confederacy, and I, I believe this, 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 this formed a plank of, of Robert Hughes's brilliant argument in Culture of Complaint. The defense of the Confederacy, which is basically a form of white reactionary special pleading or white reactionary political correctness, um, nobody, no, nobody cares about it anymore. It's just, it's so, it's so tired. It's so spent. Um, and I, I can't stress enough because people forget just how, how, how sort of um, central to the debate in the culture wars this was in say the 1980s, the 1990s, that the fact that it's really not anymore, that we've all just kind of agreed the Confederacy is dead. People who took up arms against the United States were traitors. They don't deserve to be honored in this way. Um, it's, it's, it's seismic. It really is for this country. Um, I think there you've convincingly made the case that actually the United Kingdom is more fucked up than the United States because there is hope and optimism after Trump that um, things are getting better. Whereas here, the prime minister, or it's been sneaked out that um, we are um, leaving the EU um, for definite, even though we're going to take a massive hit with uh, with COVID and, and we're going to make a, a double whammy um, with Brexit piled on. The Prime Minister hid away the Chief Nursing Officer of the United Kingdom from, um, from a, a, a press conference uh, a few weeks back because the Chief Nursing Officer thought that what Dominic Cummings, his consigliere, uh, was doing in terms of mucking around and breaking the rules of lockdown um, was wrong and would have said so. And so the solution to her dissidence was to, to gag her and suppress her. And there's a feeling that the Conservative government under Boris Johnson is massively out of step with the... Excuse me. What um, the hell is that? That's my... <laughs> Are you watching my, Strictly Come Dancing while we're podcasting? Yeah, is that what that that's is? My, <laughs> that's my phone. That's embarrassing. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to switch it off. Yeah, I've got to... You've now, been, to you've now been publicly shamed for your ringtone, mate. You better change it. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. That's so humiliating. But all of that's bad. Um, and there's a, there's a sense that... And apparently Tory MPs have been a, a grumbling that Boris isn't, um, Boris isn't Boris, he's, he's ill, he's knackered, he's not getting it. But, but the anti-Borisites and the Conservative Party, their warning was when he was getting elected, when he was clearly um, um, the coming king, was that this is a man who actually doesn't like doing his homework. He isn't right for power because he doesn't want to do all the hard, the really hard work you have to do as prime minister in resolving a mass of disputes every day, and 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 that warning is becoming true. So I'm I think the United Kingdom is more fucked than the United States down the track in the future once Trump's gone. By the way, one quick word on Confederacy at the Snezhnaya checkpoint in the illegally held um, bit of the eastern Ukraine, which had been seized by force of Russian um, arms in 2014. This is the checkpoint you have to cross to get to the site 
of the downed MH17. It's one of the saddest things I've ever seen in my entire life. There's this cornfield strewn with um, uh, the wreckage of a jet. And I'm, I'm talking about engines, oil, the tail fin, the nose. I'm talking about corpses, suitcases. For me, the thing that trips it is a um, these, those wheeler um, little suitcases the little kids are pulled along uh, at airports at Heathrow, at Gatwick, wherever. And those those little tiny uh, toddler suitcases, books, novels, seats, to get to get to that place, you have to go through the Schneeznoya checkpoint. Mm. And they had a great big Confederate flag. And we had an idiot. Um, yeah, I told him he was an idiot. We had an idiot fixer. And... Um, we got there one day and we'd done good work because we were following the missile that had shot down um, the um, the plane. And we'd been to all the points that had popped up on Ukrainian social media. And Bellingcat did some great work on this later uh, or at the time. And they really, really dug into it. But anyway, I, I was marking this for I was doing a, a panorama on this and we were ahead of the game. And our idiot fixer got out of some... Uh, um, um, notepad at this checkpoint and said there was a new picture of the rocket going up so where's this he said to the guy with the bandana and the five submachine guns and the um his chest awash with hand grenades there's <laughs> a confederate flag yeah. swam in the breeze and they almost killed us and and i just thought i thought what the fuck what the fuck is the confederate fucking flag doing here in in the in the middle of nowhere in the in the far east of ukraine as we're enter you know greater russia as as putin would like to say it's, it. it's, it's and i hate that i hate that flag yeah, with a passion and i am so pleased that yeah yeah, yeah. john john, john. Getting... it's it's technically it's not the confederate flag it's the flag of novorossia and the, the the symbol that resembles the flag of the confederacy is the saint andrew's cross so there, there absolutely was a kind of continuity, particularly by the far right, um, of which, you know, the, the so-called separatists are p- politically aligned to kind of winkingly make this association. But it's, it's, it is distinct from the flag of the American Confederacy. Just Aha, uh-huh. I stand corrected. Yeah. I still hate both flags. Yes, well, as you should, because one is, both are flags of insurrection um, against uh, sovereign nations. So by all means, hate them both. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, no, it's, it's, this is the problem. And, and, you know, I, for, for, for people like ourselves who rely more than ever now, I think on, on social media for the latest news, it really does create a kind of, um, you know, sort of distorted reality field because you are seeing excesses in this protest movement or in this kind of activist um, insurgency sweeping your country and mine, um, attacking, for instance, statues of abolitionists, attacking, you know, now there's the renewed debate, which is also part of the old culture wars of the 80s and 90s about Christopher Columbus or George Washington or Thomas Jefferson, a slaveholder who was actually had very 
progressive views on the institution of slavery, but that's neither here nor there. He owns slaves. All of these statues now must come down. Um, and it's easy to lose sight, though, of just how extraordinary it is for there to be more or less consensus about Confederate monuments. Um, so that's that's my rather a uncharacteristic bit of optimism about the United States. However, I will say when it comes to the UK, you know, you have a prime minister who's who's a buffoon, um, but not stupid. And that is a distinction with a difference. And also not gratuitously cruel in the way that our president is. Um, and I, I, you know, I don't log on Twitter and see Boris Johnson, um, you know, s- suggesting that 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 people who are upset by, you know, statues in honor of uh, slaveholders in Bristol um, are secretly terrorists uh, or people who have been bludgeoned by cops, which I don't really see much of that happening in the UK for various reasons. And we can come to that too, are, you know, um, pensioner, you know, uh, anarchist, uh, agents provocateur. I just, it's, you don't see this. It's, there, there is no equivalence between what comes out of Boris Johnson's mouth and what comes out of Donald Trump's mouth. Um, and, you know, look, I, I, I quite like the Labour Party now under the new leadership. And I would certainly, if I was a British citizen, vote for Keir Starmer for PM. But, you know, I think we do need to have a sense of proportion about this. Trump is mm. so un, unprecedentedly wicked and, 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 and vile and stupid. And it's, it's frightening. You know, it really is. And, and the things that now give me some cause for cautious optimism, the fact that, you know, you had the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff accompany Trump into Lafayette Square dressed in combat fatigues. You had uh, Esper, the the U.S. uh, Defense Secretary, also accompany Trump. The erosion of military-civilian relationship, which they knew they screwed up on, both both of those uh, officials have now not just walked it back, but done complete about faces with Milley essentially giving a speech, I think, to a graduating class at, uh, if not West Point, then another military academy saying... I think the National Security College. Yeah, he was completely wrong to have done it. Um, he regrets it. And this is no... Pl- the military is not a political institution. They, you know, officers are faithful servants of the Constitution, not the man occupying the White House. So, you know, it, 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 weirdly, in the, the week in which the United States came closest, at least, in, you know, by the definition of some of the more um, ferocious and uh, alarmist uh, detractors of Donald Trump, it came the closest to becoming a dictatorship. It didn't. And it didn't in a rather plangent fashion where, where the, the institutions of this country stood against a man looking to take them down or to co-opt them into sort of loyalist hirelings. So that's quite reaffirming. Now, that's not to say, I mean, you're, you're now hearing the argument that, well, if Trump loses the election, which now looks likely, um, he won't leave. And so what's going to happen then? Well, I'll tell you what's going to happen then. He'll be fucking pulled out of the White House either by the Secret Service or by the military that he tried to succumb to his own sort of, uh, you know, junta spell. Or fingers crossed both. I saw uh, on Twitter the, um, the speech by General Milley where he says, I was wrong. Yeah. And, and, and it was incredibly moving. And, um, and it was like something scripted by Hollywood. But it was 
it was theatrical, but it was wonderful. And it reminded me of the time in history um, when um, the Red Scare um, was really getting out of control and eating people's lives up. And um, Senator Joe McCarthy was a, a monster. And the thing that did for him was he went for the US Army. Uh, and yeah. it feels like this is a moment where where the US Army as an institution is saying, no, we're not going with you, President well, Trump. And yeah. they're actually better guarantors of American democracy than, for example, the Republican Party. Well, so just before we went on air, I, I looked up the demography of the U.S. Armed Forces. Um, so this is interesting. And the source for this is the Council on Foreign Relations. So if you look at, let's take them uh, branch by branch, the Army, it says, and, and by the way, this the, the demographics don't just apply to race. And I'm going to, for the moment, I'm going to, because this is a black civil rights movement, if I just forgive me, I'm going to ignore um, uh, Latinos uh, and, and other minorities and focus solely on the, the black cons- composition of the arm, armed forces. Um, if you look at the army, about 20% of the army consists of black male officers uh, and soldiers. But uh, rather staggeringly, and I didn't realize this, 40% are black women. Okay. In the Navy, the figures are lower. It's still about 20% um, male blacks, but it's about 30% black women in the Marines. I want to say based on this graph, 17% black men, uh, close to 20% black women in the air force, about 20% black men and about mm, 21, 22% by my reading black women. So this, this gives you an indication of why the military has been on the front foot on this issue in a way that other institutions have not been. They simply cannot afford to look backward or to look hidebound. I mean, you cannot ask, you know, black soldiers, you cannot, we have a volunteer military. You cannot ask people who voluntarily offer up their lives in service of their country. We're going to train you at camps named for people who would have kept you in chains. It's simply untenable in the 21st century. So again, you know, you have the president of the United States who is running against the tide of history on this issue because he thinks, and I think even his, his polling on this, even from a cynical electoral perspective, he's wrong. He thinks that his core constituency of undereducated or uneducated white men is with him on this. And I, I actually think that, that that's not true anymore either. That's, uh, I'm thinking of that, my 500 quid bets, and I'm getting excited. And part of me, uh, the old rules, burning radical flame is becoming excited by that too as well but I'm also worried um, obviously what happened um, the murder in Minnesota was an awful thing but I'm worried that there will be certainly in Britain there is now a lot of anxiety from decent people who are unhappy that this um, this the wave of popular anger is now um, is now riding so high and so ferociously that there may be a um, the counter wave will be dangerous and scary. Yeah. So, 
So let's talk about the excesses, shall we? Let's talk about uh, monuments to Churchill. Uh, let's talk about, um, well, in the in the States, the I guess the equivalent to that is the decision by HBO Max, which is a recent uh, television channel, uh, obviously a, an offshoot of HBO, uh, to pull Gone with the Wind from their streaming service, at least until they can somehow contextualize the racism of that film and then put it back up. Let's talk about some of the things that maybe, maybe you and I disagree on these. Um, maybe we agree, but that, you know, sort of the, um, shall we say the, the, the social surplus of any kind of progressive movement is, uh, I, I hate the term collateral damage because it's a terrible euphemism when applied to war, but uh, for lack of a better term, the collateral damage that's taking place right now. So what are your thoughts yeah. on, on attacking statues of Winston Churchill, spray painting racist on the plinth, and so on and so forth. Is this is this legitimate, just as legitimate as tearing down Confederate monuments, or is it something well, that's a bit much? I, I got into a battle with somebody on Twitter um, who said um, Churchill was a racist and a war criminal of the highest order. Mm. And I replied, your views on Adolf Hitler, question mark. So I've written a novel. No, Uh, I've written a novel called Elephant Moon, and it's set in Burma in uh, 1942. And uh, the Japanese took Burma. And what they did by doing so is they took the the rice bowl away, uh, or a big rice bowl away from um, the British Indian empire as it was and that caused a catastrophic famine in um uh, the next year 1943 in in bengal and maybe three million people died now there's a um uh, the great minds on famine are simple there's never been a famine in a proper functioning democracy because the moment a democratically elected government supported and nagged by a proper free press says hey people are starving and government does something to be fair to churchill's government in 43 there was an awful lot of other things going on the survival of britain da, 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 da. but nevertheless churchill didn't do enough and that's wrong throughout his life he had he was an edwardian and part of his, but he was a racist, no question, mm. and that is bad and sad and wrong. But in 1940, he stood up to Adolf Hitler and the Nazis, and said, you know, after the fall of France, well then alone. And in that time, Churchill defended Britain, and and obviously with the help of the Canadians and the Indians and the Africans and the Commonwealth. Um, but we kept the flag flying for liberty in Europe, and that effectively meant the world. And then eventually, um, the Americans and the Russians uh, joined in too. Good. So this man is a great, great man, and he's a, he's a, also another thing is he hated Gandhi. He called him a half naked kafir. And so the issue is, you know, would Gandhi's campaign of civil resistance to British rule in India during the war, would it lasted a second if Adolf Hitler or Benito Mussolini had been in charge, the colonial master, 
uh, in India? No, because Gandhi would have been murdered. Well, and G- Gandhi famously said that uh, European Jewry should have just lied down and committed suicide in the face of the Third Reich's genocide. So, you know, it recalls the George Orwell line that all saints are guilty until proven innocent, which he meant <laughs> toward Gandhi. Um, and yeah, look, I mean, this, this is, I think, the problem with, you know, when when activists try to do history, everything gets filtered through the prism of their own ideological fixation. So Churchill was a great man. Uh, he also made some catastrophic decisions and held deeply, deeply illiberal views, um, you know, racism being one, um, you know, uh, but when, when, when the time, when or a time of global calamity, you know, arose, he, he did rise to the challenge of it, didn't he? And that, that can't be dismissed from any honest reckoning with who he was. I mean, you know, I, I, I was joking today to a friend, if people really wanted to upset the memory of Winston Churchill, instead of spray painting racist on the plinth of his statue, they should spray paint Gallipoli. You know, I mean, this was a failed politician until until he took the conservative leadership and then challenged Hitler. Um, I I loved, by the way, um, there was a kind of green um, um, demonstration um, about uh, ten years ago, hmm. and uh, one of the uh, the Krusties, um sliced up. A, um, a square or a rectangle of um, of turf in Parliament Square and put it on uh, on Churchill's bonds, so giving him the look of a of a of a Mahe- of a green Mohican, right? And I, and I thought that was fucking cool and great, and it was the way Churchill was leaning in, and I just I I'm 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 not precious about mucking around a bit with these figures, but. The, the wholesale attack. And the, the other thing is, and I uh, almost feel the emotion in my voice, I feel that this is a man who stood up against Nazi tyranny. So he, he had many, many flaws, and I get that, but he was fundamentally a good man, and his cause was good too. And I also feel, the, even, same, I also feel the same even, about Nelson. Even those, you know, radicals who are considered more ideologically pure. I mean, you know, the late Christopher Hitchens used to say that there weren't any real monuments to Thomas Paine in the United States, and he did more to create the kind of intellectual uh, seedbed for the American Revolution. He was he really an unacknowledged founding father of the United States. But if you read Common Sense, uh, you know, Thomas Paine uses the word uh, Jewry, um, in in the in the this sort of colloquial sense of the 18th century, which is to say, you know, uh, speculation, ursery, right? I mean, the, the anti-Semitism was a prevailing sentiment uh, among the most, you know, va- the, the most the, the, the vanguard of Enlightenment thinkers in the 18th century. It just it was something that could not be eradicated from their consciousness. So again, you have to judge history in context. You have to have a sense of proportion. I mean, you know, I, I consider myself a, a deep admirer of Thomas Paine, and I agree with Hitchens that there should be more statues to him in the United States. But you can't ignore those aspects of his thinking as well. Uh, Lord Byron, perhaps my favorite poet, um, was committed incest with his half-sister and was also a pedophile. Um, you know, just before he died, took up relations with a, a young a Greek boy, not a young man, a boy. 
you know, before expiring from, I think, actually a rather COVID-like illness. I think it was the flu or a flu-like uh, disease in Greece. But doesn't take away from the fact that he fought for Greek emancipation against the Ottoman Empire and died a hero and is considered in Greece still, uh, you know, a man but for his premature demise who could have been anointed king of an independent and sovereign Greece. So, you know, again, this is the problem. You know, history is uh, a tragedy, not a morality tale. People who try to find absolutely pure heroes and absolutely pure villains, with the exception, of course, of people like Adolf Hitler, or I would even submit Joseph Stalin, they're, they're cruising for a bruising. They're, going to, they're, they're only going to face disappointment and demoralization. I mean, FDR, who was a hero to liberal America and still is, if you look at some of the recent scholarship that's been done on what he knew about the Holocaust in real time and his rather cold and heartless response to it, he's taken a fall as well. Does that diminish from the fact that he helped save the United States from economic ruin and that he also, when push came to shove, got the U.S. involved in a war of emancipation in Europe? No, it doesn't. It's just another thing that has to be reckoned with in his legacy. Yes, uh- the, the thing that's at the back of my mind um, is the extent to which ordinary people in Britain are, um, and, and probably in the States, well, it's, it, it feels like it's different, but ordinary people in the States don't like it that the, uh, the Churchill statue has been mucked around. I don't like it. No, and, and I don't like I've, it I've surprised myself with, with uh, I'm surprised by my reaction um, and one of my friends, um, who's who was a Corbyn supporter, and I was was contemptuous of Corbyn, but um, he's significantly more um, to the left than I am. I would describe myself as centre or right wing Labour, but he is, um, and I'm happy as Larry with Keir Starmer, but he's way um, he's way more working class than I am. And all of his um, working class mates in in Wales are really anxious and angry about, in particular, the attack on on Churchill. But there's been two other things, one of which uh, there's a story running now on the BBC website that people are calling for Gandhi's statue to be brought down because he was a racist and that he had some... uh, um, clown-like views on Africans, uh-huh. um, but that's extraordinary too. And, and again, this is um, you know what you were talking about is equally applied to Gandhi. Yeah, but um, but part of this has, has ended up in a farce. But it's a kind of dark farce, and I'm worried about it. But there's an episode um, of Forty Towers which I loved to death. And it's called Don't Mention the War. And this is when uh, John Cleese playing Basil Fawlty um, uh, um, marches up and down to amuse some German guests of his awful hotel that he's offended by, by pretending to be Hitler and, yeah. uh, and saying, don't mention the war. Now, to be what's happened is that um, UK Gold or UK Comedy, I forget which, which is a wholly owned arm of the BBC has pulled the episode. And the reason for this is there's another character who's a drunken old fool called the Major, um, who who is generally just an old buffoon. But in this particular episode, 
I think he uses the N-word and he talks about um, Wops and uh, John Cleese. And this episode has been taken down um, from um, this part of British broadcasting because of that language, not because of the anti-German stuff, because of this language. Mm. But the problem is the entire thing is a satire on British jingoism and 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 uh, racial uh, and national prejudice. Where and the funniest thing, and the thing which is also the greatest challenge for people like me who were brought up completely to to see Britain as being wonderful in the Second World War and the Germans pretty bloody awful and actually that's a fair judgment but this thing takes the piss this wonderful episode takes the piss out of that smugness yeah and also takes the piss out of racism and the satire has been switched off and is now in the dark and i find that dangerous and wrong and i'm really quite passionate about this Uh, and i've i've said hey this is what no don't do this and my tweet's got a, a, a thousand likes um, on uh, on Twitter, so, and nearly everybody who follows me uh, is roughly, uh, you know, um, liberal, Labour supporting, blah 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 blah. So it's striking. Um, uh, but I feel, what the fuck are you doing? Spiking, shutting down, closing down. Look, a you, you have very. There's a very noble tradition in England. And again, I mean, the exponent of this is George Orwell, who wrote a great essay, My Country, Right or Left, which is you can be the most ferocious critic of your own government and your own society and your own government's foreign policy. With with Orwell, of course, it was empire because he was a civil servant in Burma and wrote a novel about it and wrote very penetrating essays about what that was like and how it degraded and subjugated a native population. However, in times of global crisis, where you're facing a far more reactionary superpower in the making, such as the Third Reich was, you do really, if not rally around the flag, then have a sense of proportion, have a sense of historical judgment that, you know, not everything about your own country and your own society is rank and is, is worthy of, of, of being torn down. Um, and, you know, I, the book I keep coming back to about this, because look, you know, I consider myself culturally much more conservative than I do politically. So I don't like it when people say we mustn't watch such and such movie because it, it will it will trigger bad emotions or it's offensive. I mean, I, I can watch Gone with the Wind and I'm a big boy. I can go and look up, you know, what it was like, antebellum, uh, you know, uh, race relations. I can I can look up the, 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 the controversy and complications of Hattie McDaniel willing um the first uh, Oscar for an African-American. I, I, I can trust myself to do the kind of work that's necessary. And I don't think people are of such tender minded sensibility that they can't handle these things. Right. Uh, but there's a book that was written called the strange death of liberal England. And it came out in, when did it come out? I, I always forget this because it, it was so uh, penetrating about its time and place. I want to say it came out in the thirties I, might I think remember. it could be like 32, 33, yeah, exactly. something like that. But it wasn't about that era, was it? It was about 1906, 1914, and how the Liberal Party, which had ruled in the UK, basically committed suicide because of the lack of foresight and the lack of policy with respect to some of the major upheavals taking place at the time, not least of which were the Irish question and the suffragette movement. 
And what, what, you know, what Dangerfield, George Dangerfield, the author, does very well, even though he was quite withering about, uh, for instance, and especially the leader of the suffragette movement or one of their leaders, uh, Emmeline Pankhurst, um, described her in, in terms that you would be canceled for in the 21st century. But one of the things he does well is ground, you know, the excesses of this movement within the context of history and said, yes, every time there is a socially progressive force in any liberal democratic country, it's going to go to 11. You know, you're going to see the pent up hostility and rage and frustration, you know, sort of almost come vomiting up to the surface in ways that will make it very easy for reactionary forces to say this whole thing uh, is a cause for anarchy and chaos. This whole thing is, is some kind of terrorist uh, affront to liberal sensibility, but you have to see the forest for the trees, don't you? This is why I keep coming back to, look, what's happening in the U.S. right now, there are elements of, I mean, even if you, you know, you can focus on the police brutality uh, toward not just black protesters, but also journalists, white protesters who are marching in solidarity. And yes, you can, by all means, report on the looting and the rioting and the acts of uh, vigilantism and criminality that are taking place. But you have to see this in the context of, you know, Slavery and systemic racism is the original sin of the United States. It was never fully expunged. You know, the Civil War didn't do it. Reconstruction didn't do it. Decades of progressive leadership, either elected in the South or at the national level, didn't do it. And, and frankly, this, this, this George Floyd atrocity is not going to do it either. However, um, we are seeing decades of history happening very quickly within the space of about a fortnight. And not all of it is bad. Not all of it is, is some kind of woke conspiracy to get writers uh, careers destroyed or to, you know, attack uh, hallowed institutions and, and historically agreed upon monuments for emancipation. A lot of it is to the good. Um, and we have to, you have to approach these things from a historical point of view. You cannot simply approach them from the point of view of a catchpenny pundit, um, or the, what I call the uh, the you know the, the Brendan O'Neill idea yeah. that every fucking thing that he doesn't agree with is a sign of Western civilization's decline and fall. And by the way, yeah. I, I am I am a, you know I my my essay on Houseman is finally coming out on Sunday, so I, I you know one bit from that essay if you don't mind. Houseman always describes himself as as a as a pedurist, as opposed to a pessimist. Um, a pedurist thinks that everything is going to shit inevitably. But, and here's the distinction, uh, it's all you can do to resign yourself to the fact. So don't get hysterical. Don't get overly dramatic about it. Just sort of reckon with the reality of these things. Now, on most days, I am a pedurist. I think everything is going to shit. I, I do get hysterical. I do get upset. And I do overreact. But right now, I actually don't think things are going to shit. I think things are actually moving in a better direction. And all of the distractions, uh, Antifa, you know, Donald Trump, uh, you know, uh, storefronts getting their windows smashed in. Fine. These things will be dealt with in due course. But again, I can come back to the fact there is consensus in the U.S. Armed Services that racism has no place. There is consensus now in the pastime of the South and middle America, the, the pastime of the uneducated white population of this country, which has seen itself at least if you speak in electoral terms, as under siege because of changing demographics, agreeing that racism, systemic racism, and monuments to human bondage have no place uh, in, in that sport. These are no small things, but they're getting lost 
in the in the you know the more fashionable conversation about cancel culture and wokeness and political correctness. Historians' job is to look at the core movements, look at the core events that define an era, not look at the sort of you know surplus, which is what I think a lot of what we're talking about uh, you know concerns. I mean, yeah, Winston Churchill you're not going to see new books of history come out that fundamentally, I think, change the historiography on Winston Churchill, right? I mean, I correct me if I'm wrong. All of the archives, all of the letters, all of the research has been done. Um, you know, you're going to have, you know, the Tory right deify him and mythologize him. You'll have critics point out all of the shortcomings um, and flaws and, and frankly, human rights abuses that he was responsible for. But we're more or less agreed on Winston Churchill. I say this statue yeah. is not going to be torn down. It's been boarded up for its own protection, and of course, B- Boris is is raging about that, as you would expect him to do, because that's the cult of Boris, which is inextricably linked with the cult of Churchill. But it's not, not coming down. Not to me, it isn't. Well, um, the the and many many people, and 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 that's that's another thing. But by the way, I'm reminded of a of an old joke um, from the time of Stalin which is that people would say to each other in Moscow, you'll never know what happened yesterday because because the Soviet regime suddenly um, reversed history and changed history. And it feels like there's a bit of that, but as somebody who, who loves history, I'm kind of excited. So I'm just looking uh, um, for some positive so that, Hardly anybody knew who these people were, these boring statues. And the Colson one, which rather fantastically, Google Maps immediately, once it had been dumped, Google Maps said um, they relocated it in the, um, in, the, in the Bristol Channel, which is really funny. Right. But also people have started thinking, well, who is this guy? Who? And, and, and I, for one, think that actually there's a whole ton of, in London, there's a whole ton of rather... So-so uh, statues of so-so Victorian generals who, whose families or regiments had money, and that's where they were pop, uh, put up on plinths. And I'd much rather some of these people, quite a few of them, were rubbish generals, frankly. Um, if they got knocked off, uh, and you put in, uh, you put up people, for example, um, um, a monument or a statue to a, a woman slave, that would be a good thing. But also to Turing. I think because Turing helped, I really do believe this, by cracking the Enigma Code, he helped shorten the Second World War. He was a great, great Englishman. Mm-hmm. And um, and he ended up being tortured by the state because of his homosexuality. Yeah. And he invented the modern computer. So, And there isn't a statue to him in London. Well, that's ridiculous. Also, there's a passionate thing that I've got is that the poor young men who were shot at dawn for cowardice when they effectively they just had shell shock in the First World War, there should be a statue to those too. So the idea that uh, what's ex- history, and, and I'm, I believe this passionately, history is never frozen. History is a river. And how we now look at history, how we look at the past, is always changing. And this is this is weird and accelerating, but it's exciting to think that we can have serious and good arguments about this. What I hate is the idea of the woke culture saying, no, you can't even, you can't even accept that what John Cleese 
and Connie Booth did with um, uh, Don't Mention the War was that they were satirizing British racial and nationalist prejudice. That's what they were doing. So don't switch it off. Understand that. Exactly right. And but I will say this, and and it's been a pleasant surprise. Um, Woke culture is its own undoing. So the minute that uh, HBO Max pulled Gone with the Wind from the streaming service, it became the number two or number three most rented movie on Amazon, right? Because people don't want to be told what they are allowed to watch or read or not watch or not read. Uh, Dave Chappelle, who's just doing a special, I think this this guy is one of the, the, the greatest comics of the last 25 years, but this is a guy who was canceled, as we say, on social media for his last Netflix special, where he was making jokes about not believing, for instance, Michael Jackson was a pedophile and didn't molest those boys. I mean, you know, really tawdry, scandal-mongering humor, but that's humor, right? He's a comedian. He's allowed to transgress some of these boundaries. Whether yeah. or not he genuinely believes in the things, I don't care. Is it funny or is it, does it, is it, is it unfunny? That's the only measure of a comic. Um, his last Netflix special was derided by critics for not being sufficiently woke and progressive, but you know what? It was one of the most watched things on Netflix and he just went on to win a Mark Twain award. So the market is correcting for some of these excesses. Yeah. Um, yes. that, that's something that can't be, uh, overlooked itself. And, and so my fear, my concern from just a, a purely political point of view is remember, And I've mentioned this before. Donald Trump ran in the primary election in 2015 on uh, I don't have time for total political correctness. That was his whole mantra. If he's going to seize upon things like the cancellation of Gone with the Wind or not that he's ever heard of or watched Faulty Towers, but things of that nature, it is going to resonate with a large swath of American society because American society doesn't give a fuck about, you know, the New York, the, the, the internal uh, you know, purges taking place at the New York Times for their publishing an op-ed by a sitting U.S. senator. They don't care. They're not interested in what trends on Twitter. They're really not. Um, they're interested in, you know, is it funny? Is it compelling? Is it entertaining? Can I watch it? Who's telling me I can't? And, you know, the rest of you go fuck yourself. That's that's American society. And yet, you know, and 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 to his credit, to his credit, so far, Joe Biden who could have easily said, I agree with defund the police, which is actually a more nuanced policy position than the slogan itself suggests, said, no, 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 wait a minute. We, we, we won't have a functioning society or country if we don't have law enforcement. I mean, then you're just you're asking for total anarchy and chaos. By the way, Bernie Sanders agree, agrees with Joe Biden on this point. So there's nowhere to the left of Joe Biden in the mainstream political situation to go. Um, he has avoided some of the worst temptations and lures of ultra woke leftism, uh, which would be electorally catastrophic for him. So let's see where this winds up. But yeah, people are, you know, again, on the things that matter most, I see my country heading in a a fairly good direction on all the rest of the ancillary bullshit, the things that occupy hot hashtags and, and, you know, writers from the New York Post to the Daily News to the New York Times fixate on I just don't care because the market will correct. You know, I still find Louis C.K. hilarious. I still watch his shows, even though he can't get a special on HBO or Netflix. Um, because this is a, a comic who built his whole built his whole comedic career on the fact that he was an asshole and a reprobate. And it turned out in real life, he kind of was. So I'm not shocked by that. I don't find that hypocritical. 
I just want to know, is he funny? And the answer is he is. So, you know, there is a saving grace to all of this. Uh, and these excesses do meet with the, they, they crash upon the harsh shoals of reality and what, what, what the average person just believes through common sense is right or wrong. And, you know, I, look, I'm, I'm heartily surprised and gratified that my country is moving forward on race because this really is the, it, this, this is the quintessential question of the United States. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, wasn't it Swift who did this satire about how the Irish should eat their own babies? Yes, and and, and he he got he got prosecuted for it. What was it was a joke? Yeah, it was a Actually, joke. Exactly. It, it was a joke at the expense. Um, so we've got to. Um, um, I'm reminded once more of um, uh, there's a wonderful American military psychiatrist called Robert Lifton. Um, who treated GIs who'd been brainwashed by the Chinese communists who, after they'd been captured in the Korean War, um, held in North Korea, brainwashed, and this guy treated them. And then he, he, he wrote this book um, about thought control and totalitarianism, which Richard Condon Nicked turned into a novel um, called The Manchurian Candidate. And Lifton then got interested, um, because he was interested in totalitarianism, he got interested in cults and the totalitarian and authoritarian mindsets. And he said, the enemy of totalitarianism is um, the best thing to do is to defend a sense of humor and mockery. Of course. And and, and that's what we do. That. They can't handle that. And it's, it's the greatest tribute to people like Swift uh, or, you know... Um, in Milan Kundera's The Joke, the joke is a, a slogan, long live Trotsky, which has been satirically. It's the greatest tribute to anti-totalitarian thinking when for telling a joke or, 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 or satirizing or, or parodying the ruling regime, you're treated as, as the most dangerous um, counter-revolutionary element in the society. Uh, and, you know, by the way, the, the, the tone deafness about satire um, forget faulty towers, right? You'll recall, you'll recall when um, jihadists shot up the offices of Charlie Hebdo. Um, there was a lot of Western public intellectuals coming out to say, well, of course we don't condone violence, but Charlie Hebdo was trafficking in anti-Muslim bigotry. Look at the covers and all the rest of it. Uh, well, leaving aside the fact that this was a magazine founded by French communists, uh, militantly secular, who made much more uh, of, a, of a point of taking the piss out of French Catholicism than they even did out of Islam. Um, a lot of the covers were completely misapprehended by Westerners who didn't understand the recherche French comedic sensibility, shall we say, which more often than not, for instance, their most notorious cover wasn't the one, um, it, well, the, the one that they did in a, you know, sort of uh, after the massacre, of their their uh, employees and their writers was seen as sort of an attempt at reconciliation with the prophet Muhammad holding up, you know, all is forgiven kind of sign. But the one, the most notorious cover they did was Ian Kurdi, um, the uh, the young boy who washed up on the shores of Europe in, at the height of the refugee crisis. And I think on the cover there was like, you know, McDonald's and all kinds of Western consumer symbols scattered throughout and everybody threw a, a fucking hissy fit about this cover. What Charlie Hebdo was doing was mocking Europe. It was scandalizing yeah. Europe 
in governments for not taking the human rights of refugees seriously. But this was completely misapprehended by tender-headed observers in the West who just didn't understand, they didn't get the joke. Sometimes yeah. it's a pleasure to be misunderstood, right? It shows well, uh, chaps, we're running out of time. When I say chaps, I just mean chap, actually, but there we go. Uh, but that's the thing. That is the thing. You've been listening to The Last Call with John Sweeney here in London, Mike Weiss in New York. Don't mention the war. Thank you for listening. <laughs>